seated. Take your Bibles with you and turn to Matthew 18. We have a short reading in Matthew 18 this evening. The last time we were in this chapter, we covered verses 1 through 6 that concerned our Lord's interest in the little ones. And he warned with great severity and solemnity that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in him to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and thrown into the depth of the sea. We move on from that solemn warning to more solemn warnings in the next three verses. Matthew 7, or 18, 7, 8, and 9. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we now pray again for help. We pray, Lord, now as we read your word and hear it preached, that your Holy Spirit, as a good plowman, would come and break up the fallow ground of our hearts and make our hearts good and ready to receive the good seed of your word. We pray that what you sow now among us, for you are indeed the one who speaks, we pray that what you sow will take root in our hearts, that it would indeed take deep root and strong root, and it would bring forth a harvest of righteousness, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold, O Lord, bend low over us, this field, and take from us wonderful things to your praise and glory and to our great good. O Lord, be among us in strength. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Matthew 18, verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is God's word. Beloved, in our text tonight, our Lord Jesus comes to sober us about the pervasiveness of temptation and the pervasiveness of sin that exists throughout the world. Just when you might have started to think the world is a somewhat safe and pleasant place to live, the omnisapient Lord Jesus Christ, meaning the all-wise King, steps forward and speaks to take the shine off the world and take the fog out of the eye. The world is not a pleasant place. We should always remember 
what the Lord said about the world of men before the great flood in Noah's day. He said, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. But the flood judgment did not change the nature of man. It was not expected to. So even after the flood, the Lord says this, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Genesis 8, 21. Now, all of this does not mean the earth is lacking in wonders or in beauty or in many good things. The earth is not lacking in these things. Even though all creation groans together in the pains of childbirth until now, the earth is still very much stamped with the goodness and bounty of its creator as it waits for the revealing of the sons of God. It will not be thrown away. It will be renewed. But the world, our Lord speaks of in verse 7, is not the earth. The world here means the people of the earth, the race of men who now together breathe in and breathe out what Peter calls the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 2 Peter 1.4. It is of this world that Jesus says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Our Lord Jesus is making a grave announcement Lacking all cheer, the people of the world, he says, will be always walking in a thick, thick forest of temptations. Now, beloved, you might not ever want to see a Christian pastor on the evening news saying, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. But Jesus Christ is your pastor, and he says it. Learn to think like a Christian. Learn to love the kingdom of Christ. Learn to love and even desire to hear the truth, even when men mock it and think it foolishness. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. A grave announcement, lacking all cheer, Now, none of the people of the world, our Lord is saying, none of them, not you, not me, none, can walk anywhere else than where we have to walk, among the world. It is the natural habitat, however, of the world to be a thick forest of stumbling blocks. And that's the Greek word for temptation that appears multiple times in this short text. Scandalon. Or later in verse 8 and 9, scandalizo. Offense is a common translation. Temptation is the ESVs. Now Paul is making a point similar to our Lord's when he writes in his second letter to Timothy. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, 
heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 3, 1-7. Beloved, the world will not cease to be a place of stumbling blocks to sin. But praise God. Praise God if you, if we, through the grace of salvation, are now laying, laying down fewer and fewer of these stumbling blocks ourselves. But there will be many such stumbling blocks laid down before us. And woe to us because of it. Woe to us for the trials of temptation. Woe to us for the constant watchfulness and vigilance required to live for God in this place. The first woe of verse 7 is not a judgment woe like the second is. It's a lament woe for those who have to live in the world. For there is no other place God would have us to live until we are out of the world Woe to us. We too are like Jesus then. Men of sorrow, women of sorrow, because the world is full of stumbling blocks. Our Lord then says, also in verse 7, for it is necessary that temptations come. Now here Jesus is immediately quieting and calming his church from getting fanatical or distraught about the condition mentioned in the first clause. No one of Christ's flock should fall prey to this frenzied spirit where we start yelling at the church for the prevalence of temptation in the world. If you church were better, there would be no stumbling blocks in this town. That's fanaticism that doesn't listen to the Lord who says it is necessary that temptations come. Neither should we in the church become angry with the world and say, world, you should organize yourself better and remove every temptation. It won't happen. It is necessary that temptations come. Calvin is very helpful here. He says, it must be held by us as a fixed principle, that it is the will of God to leave his people exposed to offense in order to exercise their faith and to separate believers as the chaff from the pure wheat and the wheat from the chaff. It is necessary that temptations come. Jesus then says at the end of verse 7, But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Yes, temptations are necessary to come, but if they come through you, then woe to you. 
Great will be your sorrow. It will not be acceptable to God for you to say on the judgment day, hey, I thought temptations were necessary to come. I was just doing my part. Matthew Henry is right. Though God makes the sins of sinners to serve his purposes, that will not secure them from his wrath. Now this last woe of verse 7 needs a little more of our attention. And let us understand clearly what our Lord is saying. He is saying you are in a dangerous condition with God when you are the one who lays a stumbling block before others that weakens their faith or strengthens their corruptions or confuses what is clear or approves what is forbidden. Others will certainly be held responsible for their sin, but you will be held responsible for tempting others to sin. It is not true what you may hear some people say. How I dress, how I talk, how I drink, how I entertain myself, none of my ways make me responsible for what others do. That is not true. Christ is true, though every man be a liar. Woe to you. You are responsible for the temptations you bring near to the lives of other people. Let me show you that this is well attested in Holy Scripture. Here are several examples. In 1 Samuel 2.17, we read about Eli, the priest's sons. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And a chapter later, we read, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear The people of the Lord are spreading abroad. The two sons of Eli are bringing a metastasizing cancer into the camp of the Lord's people. Romans 2, 23 says this, Paul to the Jews, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul is telling the Jews who boast in the law that their lawlessness is causing Gentiles to hate the true and living God. To think terrible things about their God. What is wrong with the Jews' God? Doesn't he see their wickedness? Why doesn't he stop it? He must not be omnipotent. Or maybe he's not holy. The Gentiles are blaspheming God because of the lawlessness of the Jews. The lawlessness of the church. 1 Timothy 5.14 says, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. No stumbling block. 1 Timothy 6.1 
Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. No stumbling block. Titus 2, 4. The older women are to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Titus 2.6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Clearly, Paul means that there are ways to behave in the church as young men where we actually invite evil to be said about us. We lay a stumbling block. One more, 2 Peter 2.2. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Beloved, it is well attested in scripture that we are responsible for the stumbling blocks that we put in front of others to weaken their faith and strengthen their corruptions. Now in verses 8 and 9, our Lord Jesus continues his sobering teaching on the danger of temptation. In fact, he uses the same Greek language that he's just used thrice in verse 7. When you see in your English translation the phrase causes you to sin, that's one word in the Greek, skandalizo. Causes you to stumble. Causes an offense. Translated causes you to sin by the ESV. He is continuing the discussion on removing stumbling blocks. But now, now he moves in very close, not just into your neighborhood, not just into your home. He moves right into your body. In these two verses, Jesus calls for us, believers, redeemed children of God, to pay the price to keep from offending ourselves, to keep from causing ourselves to stumble because we perhaps refuse to give up something that we think is so dear to us. And we end up leading ourselves into further sin, weakening our faith, strengthening our corruptions. And so he says, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So our Lord now is talking about the things that are very near and dear to us. I mean, I really love this arm. There are very few things I would give in trade for it. 
I would not even give this arm for an iPhone 15. It's more dear to me. But beloved, are the things that are near and dear to you more near and dear to you than the life of the everlasting world to come where Jesus Christ is king? Do you value the things of this world the things that you want to do, want to look at, want to read, want to go to, do you value and love them more than you love life that Christ has died to open to you and give to you the eternal life with God forevermore in heaven? Our Lord Jesus is speaking then about the great costs every true Christian will pay to escape the corruptions that are in the world. We will willingly lose things that other people would never think of losing. Why? Because we have faith. We see what they do not see. We see life, the eternal life, the eternal kingdom of life, where there is no death, where there is no judgment, where there is only blessedness and joy, there is no temptation. We see life. We have tasted it. And we see this by faith. We see what they do not see, and we see it by the authority and the truthfulness of God's word. We see that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a kingdom of righteousness, and righteousness is good to us. Because righteousness in him is what has delivered us from condemnation. His righteousness. We love him for his righteousness. Without it, we have no salvation. We are now converted to see all righteousness as good, not burdensome. So we would rather have that kingdom of righteousness than cling to the kingdom of sin, which is the kingdom of the world with its corruptions. So, beloved, we are simply, this is verse 8 and 9 in a sentence. We are, we are called by faith to give up that which causes us to sin. Now, the Lord is not literally saying, pull your eye out and go with an empty socket. He's not literally saying, cut off your arm. And unfortunately, there have been in the history of the church some who have misread the text with a fanaticism that left them still desiring sin even though they were now eyeless and armless. Our Lord in his great wisdom and skill in teaching is speaking in these bracing terms that we would do something true and real about the things that are near and dear to us that would cause us to sin, cause our faith to weaken, cause our corruptions to strengthen. Let me put this on the street for you. Perhaps some of you are addicted to entertainment. Perhaps entertainment and the way that entertainment has taken over the modern world where you can stream a movie at a subway on your cell phone 
with headphones plugged into your head. Perhaps entertainment has become an obsession to you that it is actually keeping you from prayer, keeping you from reading your Bible. Perhaps the entertainment has become almost like a drug to you. You need a hit of it to feel well, to feel whole, to feel like your life has value, and that the Bible doesn't do that for you. Prayer doesn't do that for you. Perhaps entertainment is the arm you need to cut off. Perhaps you need to get rid of some of it, to take the things of God seriously and to keep your soul from stumbling blocks to sin. I could go on with many more things other than entertainment, politics, food, money. Here's how our Lord taught the same thing earlier in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 13, same teaching, different images. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Beloved, you cannot buy your way into the kingdom of heaven, but you do have to sell your way. Let me explain what I mean. You have to repent And that means you have to get sin out of your life. The Westminster Confession of Faith, in its oh-so-excellent chapter on repentance, says this, 15, Article 3, Although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, Yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may may expect pardon without it. There is no saving faith and there is no growing faith if I want to keep the corruptions of the world and Jesus. Jesus will not be second fiddle. So we must give up We must cut off. We must continue to even care for our own soul, which has been purchased at the expense of Christ's blood. How precious our soul is to him. In this language of verse 8 and 9, we are hearing how precious our soul is to him. And it should not be a hard thing to hear that it would be equally as precious to you, the soul for which Christ died. And the text then says, would you rather keep these things and be thrown into hell? Are they that valuable that you will insist on having them and forfeit life and be thrown into hell with them? How great were they if they have you tossed into hell? How wonderful were they? Hell is a place of unceasing torment. The word our Lord uses for hell at the end of verse 9 is the Aramaic word Gehenna, which itself is a word that stands for the Valley of Hinnom, 
It was a real place just south of the city of Jerusalem where gross idolatry was practiced. From the time of King Ahaz to the, King Maha- to the time of King Manasseh, children were burned in fire there as an offering to Moloch, a false god. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 28. Years later, after King Josiah destroyed this place, it became a dump, a place where the city started burning its garbage. And so there was always a fire burning there, and Gehenna became a symbol for the unquenchable fire of God's wrath. Why fire? You see it there at the end of verse 9. Well, every creature learns early the danger of fire. Fire devours, it burns, its pain is not gradual, it is sudden. Now, beloved, this does not mean that hell is literally a fire pit. If the word Gehenna is symbolic, and it is, then the fire of hell is likely also symbolic. But biblical symbols always point to something real. It's not symbolic to another symbol. They always point to something real. And if the symbol is fire, then the reality, the reality is torment. Plain and simple. In a text from Mark 9 that parallels our text tonight, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell. To the unquenchable fire, he says there. The unquenchable The Lord's point is that torment, the torment of putting sin to death in your body, the torment of putting sin to death today in your life is nothing compared to the torment of hell. Hell is a place of unceasing torment. You think fighting against sin is going to cost you too much. I tell you now with the Lord's words, not fighting against sin is going to cost you much more in the fires of hell. Many have created an imitation of the Christian faith. And they discover in their 50s, 60s, that they are no Christians at all. But they are devotees of the imitation that they have created. And why did they create it? So they could keep their sin. They refused to cut it off and throw it away. This, beloved, is the number one reason People who were once on church rolls apostatize because they want to keep sin. They want a kingdom that is not righteous. They want a king then that is not so righteous. We have a better king than that. Is the fear of God's judgment then supposed to consume all enjoyment of God? leaving us with none? Are we supposed to be so afraid of God and hell that we never rest, never repose before God like beloved children who are just happy and at ease in his presence? The answer, of course, is no. It is not God's will that you be so gripped with servile fear of him that you have no enjoyment of him. It is his will, however, that you be so gripped with a fear of him that you do not settle down in the enjoyments of sin and worldliness and hypocrisy and false religion and the admiration of men. The much greater severity 
of God's judgment should give us great courage to overcome the fear of men. Fear God instead. Fear his wrath until you are on the right side of his righteousness. You gain that righteousness by faith alone. You gain that by faith in Christ's life and death for you. That in his substitution, he has opened the kingdom of life for you freely, without money, without cost. You don't pay it again, but you must repent. And after that, faith takes hold in you, that saving faith. You continue to fear God's coming fiery judgment on the wickedness and falsehood and hypocrisy of the world. But do not fear his tenderness. His tenderness is never changing toward his children. If you would fight against sin before him, on your knees before him, in your confessional closet before him, if you would fight against sin openly with him, telling him all that you are doing and all that you need from him and all the help you need, if you would fight against sin with him, you will never have more tender friend, more tender help, more encouraging master. Beloved, do not fear that his kindness is unstable. It is not. Let us pray. Father, help us now believe what we have heard. Help us, Lord, do what we must. Father, if there is something we must cut out of our lives, let us not think of ourselves as so sophisticated, so refined as Christians, so urbane, that we don't need to cut out these things that we aren't like those older people of the faith who used to be very careful about these engagements in the world. Oh Lord, help us not be so deceived. Help us believe our savior and not these imitation Christianities. Father, help us have the strength put an end to what must be ended. Set in our hearts a new affection that makes the cutting off not something we dread to do, but something we are even eager to do and can sustain in doing. Give us new affections, the expulsive power of the new affection of the love of the King of Righteousness whose righteousness is so beautiful to us in his atoning substitution, in his active obedience, in his passive obedience. Let us not think lightly of his righteousness, for it is the very righteousness that we have received by faith alone. Father, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.